Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. And I'm your co-host, Ryan. This podcast was created to provide you, our heroes, with new and reusable material for both players and DMs. We hope to inspire you with creative content that you can bring with you on your next adventure. Well, thanks for joining us today at the Crit Academy Studios, where everything's made up and the roles don't matter. Yep, that's right. Your roles are like a DM without any players. Today <laughs> we're going to hear feedback from Crit Nation. The question today is... How much combat is too much combat? In addition, our main subject and main topic of the day is going to be ruling the world, the job of the DM. And of course, our favorite segment, the Unearth Tips and Tricks, where we deliver reusable content for your games. So, combat. Well, it depends on the player and the DM. Some players and some DMs prefer large amounts of combat, and that's the reason they play the game. They like the tactical aspect of using their squad of players to take down the biggest baddest enemies some players prefer role-playing and talking their way out of situations so you kind of have to play it by ear and really read your group it's really hard to say how much combat is the right amount of combat because every player likes a different amount and they like to play the game their own way right and the best way i found to do this is going into a session or a campaign with a group starting with a session zero where you're creating your characters have a discussion with the party or the team about what kind of game do they expect to run. Do they want to run a combat-heavy game? Do they want to roll? Do they want to run a political intrigue? Right. Do they want to run high role play versus in less combat? Maybe more puzzles, more adventure. That really comes down to the team. So while you, as the DM, have the power to decide how much you think is necessary, it's good to include the players in that decision because they're the ones really that. You're trying to target it. Ultimately, they're the ones who make the game. Without the players, you have no game. Right. Well, my wife would argue that I don't have any game anyway. (laughs) So, when it comes to defining how much combat you need, um, in 4th edition, I know we're focused on 5th, but in 4th edition, they had these structures called Dungeon Delves, which was basically three encounters. Two of them were generally combat, and one was some sort of puzzle. And that's kind of the mantra that I've used building my own games is I try to for every two combat encounters I try to run puzzle or a a social interaction uh, somewhere along those lines so we want to thank Brandon uh, Brandon Gray for that one that was another (coughs) question from him so thank you for listening you're the man (laughs) on to our main topic ruling the world and of course we don't mean ruling the world absolutely we do oh okay (laughs) The, the Dungeon Master's jobs and responsibilities. Now, there's not really a short, concise way to say what the DM's job is. Right. Uh, you really do everything in the game, or in the, in the game world. As the DM, you are the storyteller. You control all the NPC, all the non-player characters. So the bad guys, the good guys, those that fall somewhere in the middle. You, know, you set the scene, you build the world. You make decisions on rules for your what your players can do. You really run the game. You know, if you think of it in terms of a traditional like video game RPG, you are the game. You're, you're the, the person. Yeah, you're the developer. Yeah, that makes more sense than you are the game, doesn't yep, it? It sure does. But that's okay. You know what, man? I'll let you run with it. Um, while there's traditionally significantly more work in the DM's responsibilities. I honestly think it's also the single most rewarding aspect of the game. Because you get to create a world and then watch it come to life. Right. You know, as a player, you do develop a certain bond with your character and you get to develop that character. But as a DM, you get to experience that intimate development with the entire world. Yeah, and the, and, and once the players start engaging with it... They start to do things that you didn't even think of. So, A, you're uh, forced to think on the spot, which adds to the creation of your world. Or they, you give them the, the freedom to maybe create those things. Maybe that forest over there, somebody heard rumors of you know a troll in it. Well, you didn't plan there being a troll, but hey, guess what? There is now. Or even in the sense of you, you created this city, but you forgot to give it a name. Your players are coming up to it. Say, oh, you guys have been journeying, you, you, you've been traveling for days and days, and you're coming up on the town that you were aiming for. Well, what's the name of the town you guys were searching for? Shakik. Yeah, a lot of times they'll just throw something random out. Like, 
for example, we had one day in one of our games. It's like, what's the name of the forest you you were hermit you lived your hermitage in? Uh, orc taint forest. And so now, now our world has an orc taint forest. And while it, while it's funny and kind of tongue in cheek, you know that does add to the immersion of the players actually having a role in what happens and what shapes the world. Right now, not every DM is like that, though. You do right. get some that are very strict. This is their world, their plan. You're sticking to it. And that's also fine. Yes, that's... there's nothing wrong with that, but it's important to remember that you have to decide what type of games you want to run, what type of DM you are, and from there, decide how you're going to deliver on that, how you're going to set the mood, how you're going to run the monsters, how you're going to be in charge of uh, orchestrating this big, giant... And it's also important to recognize that as a player, it's a lot easier as a player to find a new game than to find a new party when you're a DM. Yes. So your players, if they don't like your DM style and you're unwilling to compromise at all and try to suit their needs, there's a chance your players may just quit and may quit on you. And while that does suck, part of D&D is the social aspect and you do have to compromise in social situations. Right. No one's ever going to get everything their way. Actually, maybe this could have been a DM tip, but I'll go ahead and share it anyway. Uh, Something that I tried to do early on, and I did many times until just actually recently I kind of stopped doing it, um, is I passed out note cards, you know, what did you like, what didn't you like, and I learned a lot about what my team's expectations were. And when I wasn't running mods, I conformed to that. Now, when I started running the mods, that was much more difficult because everybody wanted to run the Horde of the Dragon Queen. So we bought the book, and that really restricted me to cater towards those people. At least that's my excuse. Right. (laughs) But, you know, it really comes down that the DM wears many, many hats. He does. And in addition to being, you know, the, the judge of the rules, they are the creator, they are the storyteller. There is a lot of work involved in that, being a DM. Right. And one of the biggest pieces of advice I could give to a new DM is to watch. You're not going to ever know. You're not going to learn how to be a great DM overnight. Watch your players. Watch if, you, if you're if you a player in another game. Watch your DM. Watch the things he does. And learn from the things that your players want to happen and learn from the things that other DMs do. I agree 100%. Um, a good way to do this is... Um listening to podcasts of gameplay right Um, that's what i do i listen to a bunch and i try to pull what i think is really great about certain ones and incorporate it in my game now i found that that's molded me over time to be a different dm than i originally was hopefully a better one yeah i can't say that you're a player in my game i don't know how you think about it but well and a very important in my opinion a very important thing and i think it's also a very important thing in life as well as just D D, is to be flexible you know right the way you're doing things might not be the best way so be open to trying new ways when you when they when you encounter them just like sex (laughs) yeah yeah sure you Um, want to get stale and old right same missionary position you started when you were whatever appropriate age you were (laughs) 12 right (laughs) no definitely not (laughs) But anyways, so it is your responsibility to put the players on the edge of their seats and to make them feel feel like heroes. That being said, there's a lot that goes into it. So why don't we step through and take it step by step and see what we uh, we prepared for you. For sure. The first and biggest part of being a DM is preparing the adventures and preparing the sessions. So... When, when you go to, as a player, what, something that a lot of people don't appreciate is when, when you go to your D&D night, an entire session, an adventure, a, a world, an encounter, this has all been planned out by someone who spent probably hours throughout the week constructing this Amen encounter for you. Exactly, yeah. It, it, it does take time. So one of the first things you have to decide is, you know, what, are you, what what's the objective in this adventure? Are they, you know spelunking in an ancient crypt are they searching in a cavern are they defending a village there are a lot of different ways you can take it are they you know on a merchant ship are they mm-hmm. storming a castle Lay on a boat yeah <laughs> there, there are a lot of different things you can do there are endless things that you can do so you have to decide what 
situation and what environment your players are in at the start of the, the right encounter. and it's really easy to pull inspiration from your favorite movies and your favorite books and you know your favorite tv show pull in uh even if maybe you watched an episode of uh doctor who doctor who and you decide that this foreign creature is going to come from another planar existence and beseech your group for help right well what kind of help would he need you have to decide okay if he's going to beseech them for help, is it in his world? What kind of world is that going to be? Is it going to be attacked by Martians? Is right. it being overrun by a horde of zombies? You know, those are pretty simple to just toss together, even from something like Doctor Who. Right. Though I think it would be weird if a TARDIS showed up in the middle of Forgotten Realms. Yeah. But hey, you know. <laughs> you never know. Maybe it's a crate instead of a, <laughs> a, crate instead of a uh Phone booth, big cardboard box. <laughs> but it's a you. You have to start by crafting the idea of what you want from your adventure, and then you have to decide where where are your heroes starting from. Are they all together? Are they? Do they already know each other? Right. Are they strangers? That's, that, that's a big thing. If this is the first session you got, you're running, and it's whether it's a one shot or whether it's the beginning of a habitual session that you, you're going to run regularly. How? Why are these ragtag band of adventurers with each other? Why are they traveling together? Why are they in the same? If if they haven't been traveling together and they're just meeting, why are they in the same city? Why they they'll each have they each have to have their own reason for being there. Right. Otherwise, you know, there's 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 a reason that they're there. Right. And it's up, up establish to... what those reasons are and try to build early relationships between the characters. Yeah, coming up with a really great hook is really what's central you know it could be that your group goes to this this works in this guild hall and they all had the same mentor and this mentor's gone missing and now they have to return home to help find their missing mentor and that's the thing that ties them together they may not have be the same age group they may not be the same race but they all at one point went through this guild and learned from this man and now he's missing and that's really what can tie them together and that's a pretty simple and common common hook. It doesn't have to be super fancy now. The more engaged you make it, the obviously the more in-depth it is, the better it is for the players. Right. And especially when you start to get really intricate uh, hooks. It's really up to you to decide what your heroes face, what monsters they face, and really what's at stake. You know, at level one, they're probably not going to be protecting the world from something, right. you know, a bandit raid, a goblin raid, something like that, you know, makes more sense on a local small town right? or village. Yeah, because at level, at level one, you know, when you start out an adventure, your your characters are little more than common people yeah, with be a guard some special or, abilities. Yeah, they might have yeah. a guard or a, a, a student accolade. Or right, so you're not going to be defending against four ancient dragons attacking the capital city at level one. That's not going to happen. Um, yeah, you could try. Not like Horde of the Dragon Queen, where it starts you off against a dragon. Right. Yeah, I guess I didn't even think about that. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible um. start, by the way. <laughs> hey, let's all we're out level one. Let's go fight that big giant dragon. Right. So don't do that to your players. <laughs> taking into account, you know, what your heroes are going to face, you know, what what they're fighting, what's at stake. What else is around where they are? So you know, if you're if your characters are in some, a small village in the middle of the woods, well, what's in those woods? You know, what kind of creatures inhabit those woods? Is it dangerous? Is it you know relatively safe? Are there bandits? Are there some strange creatures that people see in the night and drag people away? Build the environment around. You want to start from a central point and build outward. Right, and if you actually understand what type of landscape you're in, the DMG actually has uh, a an appendix that tells you what type of monsters would be in that. In their CR rating. So you can quickly just say, okay, it's in mountainous terrains. It's going to have these monsters in it. Right. And I don't need to do much more thought than that. Right. Unless you want to toss a special villain in. Right. Or if you have some specific creature that for some reason is out of place and that begins a story hook. Right. Yeah, there you go. Maybe a maybe, maybe a portal to the plane of fire is open and there's fire elementals flowing through this thing and you're on the middle of a forest and now it's burning down you know? right like gotta do something about it so between the sessions uh, you'll use you'll really want to use the dungeon master's guide to help build your adventures and build your world 
Um, we're going to do our own episode on the Dungeon Master's Guide. Yeah, that'll elaborate on building a, the process of building yeah, an adventure. because there is a lot of information in that book. It's incredibly helpful. I, I would never DM without it. It's There's just a lot in it that if you need... A lot of good resources. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of good resources. When preparing your adventure, though, the biggest thing that I, can, I, I can't recommend enough is you don't have to start with an entire world built. Start small. Start with... This is the village they're in. This is the area they're in. These are the dangers. Here's the threats. That's really all you need. And then as you start to go out, then maybe add to it because that way it'll lower your workload. If you can start with a region, you know, the size of, you know, a state or something like that and say, okay, this is the size of this region. It's got these three superpowers here. What is their relation to each other? Okay, this is friendly. This is hostile. This is indifferent. That's really all you need. Right. And you can always add to it as you go forward. And if, if you if you do decide to start in a, some small village in the middle of nowhere, and you know, it's being attacked by bandits or something of the sort, and the players, you know, they fight off the bandits, they save the village. Oh, yay, there are heroes. That's going to have an effect. Oh, they're, yeah. They're going to be... Now, in that small village that may be very unimportant, unimportant they're going to be renowned there. And right. their name means something there. So keep that in mind. Ask your players what kind of game they want to run. Because at the end of the day, as I said before, without the players, you don't have a game. So if your players want to run a primarily RP-based game, run a primarily RP-based game. RP-based game. If they want want to run a primarily combat-based game, run that. If they want to have a game that's based on, you know, big, world-altering, crazy, catastrophic events... Keep that in mind and try to throw some of those in. If they want to run a game that's a little more quote-unquote realistic and is a little more day-to-day, just small troubles, keep that in mind. Right. Now, you don't have to restrict yourself to that stuff, but definitely it's easier to have an enjoyable experience with your team members when it's what they want. Right. And it is important to also try to coax your players into trying new things. Right. You know, if your player is staunchly... You know, defiant that he does not want to have combat encounters. Kick him out, or just <laughs> if he's never even if he's never even tried one, just make him try. Yeah, you I've know? done uh, characters from a hat before, where I've t- made a bunch of pre-made characters and I put them in a hat, and everyone got a random class, and I had a character that wasn't happy about that. So, but anyways, um, by a kind of kind of idea from scenes from a hat, right? Right. Um, but anyways, uh, what it did is it forced them to stop playing the same class over and over. Right. Um, and it actually... Which a lot of people tend to fall into. Yes. And even I've done that. I, yeah. I like wizards. I like magic because... I tend to default to rogues. Right. Yeah. And, and everyone's got that and there's nothing wrong with that. But letting, letting them change it up, especially if your group is starting to run the same characters all the time, it's a good thing to do. Um, so, and the last thing we kind of want to touch on for the adventure, I highly recommend this. Get, Especially for new DMs. Yes, for new DMs uh, specifically. Actually, if yeah. I highly recommend, I highly recommend doing it yourself. Uh, yeah. But after you know what you're doing. Um, but getting pre-made adventure modules. Wizards of the Coast has a really good a starter set for D and D. It's got the Lost Minds of Fandelver, which is a phenomenal. Which I believe is available at like Walmart. Yeah, for like ten, fifteen bucks. Yeah. And it has got one of the best modules that i have played yeah i which, think we've actually mentioned it in a past yes, episode it have. comes yeah it comes with some player rules some pre-generated characters uh, episode two yeah i think episode one actually it comes with some standard rules some pre-generated characters and a couple of adventures for you to try with your friends yeah. well technically i think it's one adventure right is it just one adventure but it's a really big one. i'm not sure i never bought it's the really sets. it's really big <laughs> is um, it yeah and it's got a my favorite part is it has so many optional quests it can last a long time yeah i've heard that the the lost minds of fendelver is a very good yeah, i really enjoy module. It. i've never run it unfortunately i've never had the pleasure but i have heard great yeah. things maybe you can dm a game with us possibly i wouldn't mind running it as a player for a change that'd be a nice change of pace <laughs> so moving on to our next topic this is one of my personal favorites and this is why i love playing D. how to be somebody else what does it take to be that npc Anytime a player interacts with another person or even an intelligent monster, it is your job as the DM to be, be that, creature. that creature or that that monster or person. Or that barkeeper or that merchant oh. or that noble. Whoever it is, you become that person. And many people, including myself, think and feel that this is probably the best aspect of the job. 
Right. You you constantly get to practice being anyone, which actually, in my opinion, makes me a better player too. Being able to turn on whether you're a power hungry warlord, you're the NPC that goes into that James Bond style uh, bad guy monologue who starts telling all. Let me tell me what I'm going to do to you, Mr. Bonds. First, I'm going to tie you up. Then I'm going to chop off your fingers one at a time. Meanwhile, the bad, the good guys are escaping. Right. <laughs> Maybe uh, you're a... St- 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 Listen, I got got, got some g- g- good stuff f- 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 for you to d- d- today. You know, ha- giving a stutter to an innkeeper or to a merchant gives it personality. And um, it also creates an obstacle. For the players, yes. a non-combat obstacle that they have to overcome. What? 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 Did, 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 did he say? <laughs> or yeah, things like that. Or even having a character who's deaf, oh, which is one yes. of the most fun things and cruel things I've ever done to a group of players. Wow! Is the noble of the city that they were trying to work for was deaf and couldn't hear them speak. Now, I actually don't know. Is there a? I mean, he must have had some sort of magic or an interpreter, right? I The way I played it off was that he had some of his like scholars create a basically like a medieval form of sign language okay. that only a couple of them knew. If I had to so, guess, the middle finger was still prominently used. <laughs> so if none of them were around, they could not adequately communicate with this man, which... That's quite the challenge. Yeah, which proposed... which created a new challenge for him. For know? all you players out there, that's an opportunity, especially if you're one of those that likes to try to learn new things. Maybe that's something your character could take an interest in and try to, hey, right. can I learn this? And then maybe spread it around the world. Right, because then even if they do have to, even if they do have someone there, now they're speaking through an interpreter, which creates a different a different feel. Yeah, what if you ask which direction is the King Koopa with the princess in... You, he says something wrong, and now you're locked in shackles, about to have your head chopped off. Right. You know, so there, there's that definitely is a, a interesting uh, take on NPC build. Being able to portray, how do you, how did you portray that? Role playing the noble when they would talk, I would just stare at them. <laughs> and in case you guys can't tell, he's just staring at me. <laughs> I would just kind of absentmindedly stare at them and like, kind of like make gestures like toward their hands mm-hmm. and. I'd say he's making, you know, he's standing there looking at you with a perplexed, like a very perplexed look, and he kind of motions towards your hands and like, kind of like ushering you to like kind of get to your point while you're speaking. So it's confusing because you're speaking, but he's trying to right. tell you to speak. I have to say, that would make a great character concept. A deaf character. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, there's rules and penalties for stuff like that, but you can always just flavor it. You know, right. as a DM, you don't ever want to punish your players if unless they want to be punished. Right. Some people like to be punished different ways. If you're into that. Yeah. You know, Fifty Shades of Grey, man. <laughs> um, but basically what it boils down to is your job to figure out how or what an NPC is going to say and how they're going to deliver it. And then it's your job to do so. Uh, you have to consider what it is specifically that this NPC wants from the players and what that NPC's motive is. You know, is that NPC... Does he want to be rich and powerful, or does he just want to provide food for his family? Yeah, I mean, if he's a if he's a duke and he's got an invasion of kobolds, why does he care that they want to? He needs to take care of them. Are they killing his people? Are they taking his crops? You know, does he have a deal with them on the side that he's you know asking them to raid and to flush out certain people? I mean, right. there's a lot that goes into that, and that should be at the the, the back of your mind every time a character asks your NPC a question because you want to think well how would this guy act is he keeping a secret is he you know is there more going on there than what the players know and a lot of the times there is even if it's a merchant you know when they when they come in oh yes I'd like to see your wares oh of course I've got the best wares for you let me show you your wares let me tell me let me tell you about this thing that my uh, my uncle had he, he's a great warrior let me tell you know they can go on to rants where his ulterior motive is not just to sell you something but he's got junk in the back and he's trying to get rid of it so he's going to talk it up and from a merchant that's a little bit easier but once you start to get into the nobles and the, the leaders the complexity really needs to be there and that's up to you as the DM to deliver that right um, Couldn't agree more. So remember, uh, consider when trying to take on and play someone else, try changing your voice a little bit. You don't have to, but 
Even talking at a little bit higher pitch with a little bit of a smile and a small accent will really change the personality of a cre- of a player. Yeah, or even or, just changing the way you pronounce certain words or you know, the pitch of your voice a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. if you just kind of gruffing your voice up a little bit for the old grizzled military general. Right, yeah, see, that's right. a good one. Or maybe it's uh, maybe it's a, a halfling and you just go, hey, top of the morning to you, you know? Right, yeah. Even just adding a phrase or some a catchphrase or something to that. Even if you're not good at, you know, accents. Yeah, it, top of the morning to you is right. still a it's nice the, change. Or even just changing the intonation that you speak with. Oh, yeah. You know, some characters might talk really fast and you, it might be really hard to understand the words they say sometimes. Or some... And some may talk real slow, right. like... So even Often if you're not good at accents, it has to do with their. <laughs> what's the word? Smart. You know, it really it doesn't take a whole lot. You're yeah, right. Even if you're not good at accents, it's you can still add flavor and personality to a character using your voice. Right, I agree, and and try to pull that the best way you can, but it definitely adds to it. And you don't have to do it for every NPC or every monster. Do it for the ones that you have that are important. Right. You know, the big general, like you described, is probably pretty critical or a noble. Right. Well, and an important thing to realize is most people in an area are going to have the same type of accent. Right. You know, most people from the United States, well, not the United States, but most people from the Midwest, Midwestern United States have a relatively similar accent. You know, there are variations and differences. In- My southern family says we talk way too fast. Do we? I don't think I do. Well, I do, but <laughs> I know I talk sass, but um, you know there there are subtle differences and variations in intonation and pronunciation. Yeah, there's a chart out there somewhere that I made like up that. that says that that's a fact. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but for the most part, our voices are similar. So keep that in mind when you're in this big region. Most of the people are going to have a similar voice. So if you want to come up with one type of accent, so most of the pe- the people in this area are you know their voice sounds like a British accent. Right. So, try to work on your British accent, and then you know, change some, make some slight variations from character to character. Can you give us an example. I can't really do a British accent, yeah. but you know, so if you're talking, you know, one character might have a voice like this, well, another character kind of talks like this a little bit. You know, you kind of close off the back of your throat when right, you're talking, right. while the other person, you know, they kind of have a lot of pep in their voice, and they're really excited about everything that they say. Yeah. See, my voice isn't, my accent isn't really changing, but the way that I intone my words is yeah, changing the intonation um and and that's kind of how i am i try to give certain races a particular one like that as well yes when when i do elves i always listen my friend let me tell you about what i have offer for you you know i i always have that same accent that same tone uh you could even say it's kind of middle eastern that i apply to my elves doesn't care i don't care what elf it is now i change the 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 intonation depending on if they're noble and their vocabulary yeah, as well yeah if they're noble or if they're somebody that's you know not what's what maybe a half elf <laughs> yeah well and a, and a good thing that half does breed. for your, your players is it's it creates recognition so instead of saying yes. oh yeah you know you see a dwarf and if you just go hey how you doing laddie and that's the voice you the kind of accent you use for dwarves generally they go oh this guy must be a dwarf Right, and they can make a lot of assumptions on that. Exactly. And you don't have to. Especially if, let's go back to, you know, you're in the village and you got one dwarf. And you say, you see a guy walking down the street and he goes, Hey, top of the morning to you. Well, you might know that that's that innkeeper or that that dwarf or whatever voice you use when you're that character. You don't have to tell them, hey, you know that it's Bardock. Right. They know as soon as you introduce that character. Yeah, and some, there will, you will have some characters, probably, if, if you run a regular game you probably will have certain characters that become favorites yes that every time your characters go back to the city they want to go see this character mm-hmm. um, especially if this is the one giving them the reward yeah i have a character named uh i actually completely ripped this off of harry potter his name's griphook and he's like a domesticated goblin literally completely word for word ripped it off of harry potter but and he lives in the i city. don't read harry potter yeah so he's, he's a that? he's a goblin that is like civilized and lives in the city. And every time I play with that group of players and we happen to be in that city, they want to go see Griphook because it's a character that they recognize. And something they clearly like. Yeah. So as for, you know, running characters, it's do your best, but it's important to distinguish them to the best of your ability. But it isn't necessarily because you change your voice. Their mannerisms is another good one. You know, use your body. Yes, using you know, I have uh, 
One particular NPC I've used in many of my games, usually he's the shady dealer, and he has a little bit of a twitch when I talk. So all I do is I wink, and then I twitch my into my neck into my shoulder when he talks, and they know that as soon as I do that twitch, they know who they're talking to without me even saying anything. You see a guy come out of the shadows, you know, and <laughs> they're like, oh, it's him. And he'll try to sell him some shady wares. And sometimes it works out for him. Sometimes it's really good stuff and sometimes not right. so much. <laughs> and, yeah, and that's that's another big thing that we, we kind of, we got so fixated in our voices is you don't only have your voice. You know, if you're playing a game where you're not together with each other, that may be the case. But for mm-hmm. the, a lot of times you're playing around a table, you have your body. You can you can stand up. You can move around. You mm-hmm. can, you know, you can act out what the character, what the player is doing, what the NPC is doing. And that's really that's that, a little too close to LARPing for me, so I don't know that I would. Well, I'm not talking about <laughs> pulling out swords and doing <laughs> attacks, but you know, things like you said, you know, if if this character is a little shady, you know, give him a little, give him a little twitch, or if he's nervous, you know, kind of like yeah, arch your back a little bit and like kind of hunker down and kind of keep looking around, around and scratching your ear and, and and sometimes it can be something more subtle than that. Uh, I had a my the Duke that I always used always put his. Rested his his uh, chin right on his his fist, fist with on his elbow on his table, and he sat like he just sat like that. I mean, that was his or a madame who did kind of something similar, but it was on like the back of her hand when she talked, and she kind of twiddled. You know, another one I would play with my hair. You know, I do that a lot with more feminine because I can't do the feminine voice, um, where I give physical cues, right? Whether it's twirling the hair or. When you get the nervous guy, and you just start scratching all over. And, you know, there's a lot you can do beside your voice if you're not good with voice. But when you use them in tandem, and you take on a posture and a tone, and then you go, "Listen, my friends, we have much danger ahead of us. We must hurry. Would you come with me or not?" And you know, I arched my back and I changed the tone of my voice, and my facial expression changed. And that says a lot and delivers a lot to the experience that is D&D. And these tips, they're not just for DMs. All the players, I hope you're taking notes too. Right. So that leads us into the next thing about running the monsters. Maybe the stuff that's not so intelligent. But (laughs) your job is to run the monsters, the big nasties that the players have to deal with. You know, It's up to you to roll attacks and damage, saving throws, and track HP. That actually is quite a um, bit of work if you introduce too many monsters into one scenario at once. Now, some DMs can do this with no problem. Um, I cannot. I tend not to have more than maybe... I would never do more than eight monsters in a scenario. Right. That's a personal preference. By all means, do what you want. Um, The one time I've run with a lot of small monsters, it was with a higher level group with two sorcerers, so they had a lot of AoE damage, and mm-hmm. I had a lot of monsters that had a really small amount of hit points. So, you know, if he threw one fireball, it killed half of them. Um, because there were a couple, there were, I think, three, like, main baddies that mm-hmm. they were really trying to fight, and then a bunch of little dudes around them that were just kind of like, oh, yeah, we're helping. And, you know, these guys, if, these little guys, <laughs> if a bunch of them hit you, yeah, it was it's really going to hurt. But you could kind of, you know light breeze comes by and it kills them all. Yeah, you start so, in their direction and they pass out. Right. And, you know, that actually, that's a really cool way for the players to feel heroic as well. Exactly. Um, yeah, when you throw a, when you shoot a fireball and you kill 12 little kobolds, yeah. whoa, what did I just do? <laughs> you, there are ashes everywhere. You know, that's a way, in 4th edition they had minions. And actually I was just having this discussion with another player of mine about how he liked the idea of minions. So I'm going to probably, there's a template out there, and if I can find it I will share it, um, that allows you to build minions in 5th edition. Okay. In minions they have one hit point, but they do a lot of damage. Right. So I like the concept. Yeah, and it allows, in 4th edition there was way more cleave attacks though. So clearing out a room full of minions wasn't a super hard challenge. Um, But uh, your job as the DM is to kind of handle all that, you know. And if you know you got two wizards that are running a fireball spell, man, plop 20 of those bastards down. Right. Let them them get the joy of melting faces. Right. Um, Let them have fun with it. Now... That being said, your goal of running monsters shouldn't always be to eviscerate the players to the best of your ability. 
You know, running monsters uh, like a Beholder or a, a Mind Flayer, a beast of super intelligence that has significantly more complex motives behind their actions can lead to engaging play and especially role play scenarios when they finally do encounter that guy who's manipulating everything from behind the scenes. I know we just talked about it for quite a bit, but some NPCs are intelligent or some monster like quote unquote monsters, you know, bad guys that they have to fight are intelligent creatures. You know, they are sometimes humans and elves. So take those person. Don't just think because now you're running a monster that you don't have to have a personality. If it is, you know, an old wizard that's just kind of gone rogue and started killing people and they're fighting him, bring that personality into it, you know? Give that character a personality. Give him a voice. Give him mannerisms. Give him something to set him apart and to really immerse your players into the game. Yeah, and when you're running them, make sure you're playing them to that that too. When you've got an intelligent monster or enemy, they're not going to run aimlessly into combat and hope right. for the best you know a wild uh, a wild boar or a or a hound might attack the last person that attacked it but if you've got a leader in a small squad who's giving order he's going to tactfully tactfully try to take down the eliminate players. the weak or take yes. out the strongest and because of that you have to remember that that's the way they should be played you shouldn't play uh, a a were a wolf the same way you play a general a general right because they don't act they don't behave the same way and it's very it sounds like a small thing but it's very important that you include those those nuances in and that the can really be enemies. a wake up call for your players oh if yeah always definitely. just you know if the first x amount of sessions they've always run into just stupid creatures that just run full speed at them and just mm-hmm. get killed and then they they find someone and they they come across this bad guy that is playing mind games with them and outsmarts them, it's a wake-up call because they're like, oh, we can't just brute force our way through this. We actually have to think. Yeah. Which... I've had uh, players' weapons stolen in the middle of the night um, from them before where they've had to... Well, I just lost my fancy new sword. Well, okay, what are you going to do? You're going to go find the person. So now they got to try to outsmart this whole person whose goals is thievery. Right. Well, they finally found the guy. Well, he sold the blade. Where you did he sell it to? <laughs> so now they got to chase it. So playing intelligent, playing monsters intelligently is important, as well as playing the dumb ones dumb. Yeah. If you know you get a wild boar and they're in its territory, it's probably going to attack them till it's dead. Right. But uh, a pack of wolves, you know, might be a little bit differently. They might scamper away, you know, in their 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 pain or whatever. But Try to play them to the best of your ability, not just run in an attack. Make sure you change up their attack patterns, move them around, reposition them. Those are those are all very important. <clears throat> because at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is you're trying to build a story. You're trying to challenge your players and, and build a fun, rewarding story to play through. Right. Uh, one thing that I'm I really am I think is important, which is why I have some problems with some mod running mods, is that I think every encounter should be important. I when I run my own games, even though I randomly build a lot of the stuff on the fly, uh, I have an overarching story, and every encounter is there for a reason. Whether my players decided to go left instead of right, I've got an encounter planned for that. All <clears throat> right, um, and its sole goal is to move it back in the direction that I want. Now, the, you know they call that railroading to an extent, but my players still have the choices that they want they decide to go left they went left and why they what happened when they went left well they ran into this moving my own adventures and combat encounters around to fit that is um in my opinion pretty important moving on you know abdicating the rules of D. this is probably one of the parts of that newer players are going to struggle with because unless you read the whole thing and can remember it which i've been playing for a couple years now and still don't remember everything right and i forget a lot because verbiage is very important when it comes to rulings and because of that i mix mays and may nots and may choose and you know different issues but when it comes to being dm you're expected to be the most educated on the rules. And you have to decide how things resolve. And with combat, though, combat's pretty structured and pretty well-defined, more so than any other part of the game. Right. You know, there's an entire chapter of combat that shows the the systematic approach of how to resolve and deal with certain scenarios. But there's also a lot of things that aren't covered in, in the book. And you, as the DM, have to make the decision on the fly 
how would this resolve? If my characters decide to jump from a balcony and swing on a chandelier in the middle of combat, can he do it? Well, there doesn't actually say, hey, where's the chandelier section? Right. You know, you have to determine, okay, well, he's got to jump, so he's going to have to make an athletics check. Um, he's going to try to grab onto it with one hand. So, what is that, a dex check? Maybe? And take into account the character that's doing it. Is it the, you know, agile ranger, or is it the 80-year-old wizard? <laughs> you know, th- those are, those are that's actually a good point, because um, that's going to change probably the difficulty. Right. Right? Exactly. Yeah, if, you know, it's the old wizard who can barely walk straight, is trying to make a running jump and swing from a chandelier, he's probably going to have a pretty hard time. Whereas the monk or the rogue who is trained in doing things like this is going to have a lot easier of a time doing it. Yeah, and, it, and you must be able to make those uh, decisions on the fly on your own. Yeah, and then, you know, not only deciding can they do it and what is it going to require, but what are the, the results? You know, if they swing from the chandelier and drop it on someone, how much damage does it do? What effects does it have? Does it knock the person down? Does it stun them? Does maybe the chandelier wrap around them and, you know, maybe they restrain, restrain them? Uh, does the enemy get a chance to save from it? You know, do they see it coming and you get a chance to make a deck save? Mm-hmm. Or does it catch them completely off guard and just hits them? Right. And if they do get a save, what kind of check is it? You know, right. do they have to, are they going to try to catch it and make a strength that save? Or are they going to try to dodge out of the way with it, with a dexterity save? Right. These are all really important things that you have to decide. You come up with on the fly in, in a second. You know, at a snap of the fingers, you have to decide all of these things. And the be- the best way to make those decisions is what makes sense for the situation. Right. And actually, you gave two really great examples. But when it comes down to it, you're going to have a lot of player ingenuity. Yeah, and reward it. And it needs to be rewarded. They need to be encouraged to want to try those things. So put things there for them to use. Put a braze. Yeah, I almost said brazier. <laughs> Put a brazier there for them to knock over that'll spill coals on the on the floor. And an important thing is, even if they want to try outlandish, ridiculous stuff, let them try. It may be impossible for them to succeed. You know, if that 85-year-old wizard is intent on jumping and swinging from this chandelier, and there's no possible way he's going to meet the DC, still let him try. I mean, at the end of the day, if that 85-year-old wizard in real life wanted to do that, he would do it. Yeah, and or he would try. And he the, might not do it, but he would try right, to do and, it. And, and the term that always said, the DMs always come up with is, you can yeah, try. you can try. Yep, you can certainly try. <laughs> you know, but just because you want to jump across a 300-foot chasm... Doesn't mean you're going to doesn't be mean you're going to be successful. Actually, and I, it's funny. I had an interesting conversation with another player the other day, and you know the way he runs his games is he hates failure to the point where nothing changes. So, for instance, cutting a rope to drop a chandelier, you decide a check needs to be made for that. He says that well, your check isn't going to fail. You're going to cut that rope. It makes sense. You have a knife. You have a sword. Whatever. You're going to cut the rope. If you roll really poopy, it might not be that you failed to cut the rope. It's that you might have cut the wrong rope or you dropped your, you sword. Dropped your sword in the process. Or, or you cut your hand off. <laughs> so you did something and some goal was achieved, whether it was intended or not. So there's always something happening. And right. that's actually a very interesting concept that I think I'm going to try to play with a little bit. Because I like the idea of something always being in the... We talked about uh, lock picking. He says you never fail at lock picking. There's X amount of tries. Oh, you picked that lock. Oh, you failed. That lock will no longer open and you know it. That's the new result. So he's not going to keep trying to waste his turns doing checks to pick this lock. Yeah. Oh, you broke your lock pick off in the Yeah, and thing. it's not coming open. Yeah, now so now you need, you need a new plan. Time to kick it down. So that stops him from wasting two or three turns trying to pick a lock. Instead, what it does is... And, and it gives consequences for failing. Yes, which is important because a lot of times outside of combat encounters, you can just try something over and over and over and over and over again. Right. You know, for example, there was one encounter we were running where um, there were some cages on the ceiling that fell down and captured us. And <laughs> the DM allowed us unlimited tries to get out. And we basically just made the strength check until we got out. Right. Which, and there was no imminent danger. There was no one coming to get us. There was no... Were you being shot at from the other end, though? I think you added that when you ran it. I ran it with a different DM who there was nothing else happening. Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I remember that because you needed something to push you guys. Yeah, we were... Same encounter, though, right? uh, I believe so. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, in underground in the underdark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And we had nothing that was endangering us. So we just kind of, you know, even if you make it, oh, you try to lift the cage and you pull your back. <laughs> like, you throw out your back. No more lifting for you. Right. Or, you know, you reach for the cage or you try to pull the cage up and you cut your hand and you can't really get a firm grasp on it anymore because the pain is too much or something like that to not necessarily punish but have consequences for failing certain actions. Right. Instead of just saying, oh, you failed. Okay, next person try and cycling through it. And actually, there was one article I read that I talked about when somebody fails a check, they can't try again. You, you that measurement is your ability to do something. So if I'm trying to kick down that door and I roll really poopy, that means that door is too hard for me to knock down. I can't keep trying. And a lot of a lot of things you'll see with people doing, and this gets back into metagaming, which we've talked about, is, oh, I'm going to make a perception check. Oh, I rolled I rolled a three. And someone else go, oh, I'm going to make one too because right. his roll's bad. Then, oh, I rolled a natural 20. Okay, but there's no reason you wouldn't have taken his judgment. Like if this is a person that you know has a very keen eye and is very you know acute and into and in tune with his senses, when he tries to see what's going on and looks, you're gonna take his word for it. Right. So there was no reason for that second person to make that check. Right. And the most most common uh, version of this is it looks clear. Everyone's seen pitch black with the guy that can see in the dark. And he looks over into the darkness, and he says it looks clear. And as soon as the next guy stands up, he gets impaled by a spear and, fl- and dragged away. Right. And he says, how's it look now? And he says, looks clear. Right. You know, so there's a lot of that. And so there's a lot of, there's some restrictions that, although the rules say you don't have, you don't do that, there's, there's reasons why you could. <coughs> you know, I like to do group perception checks. Everyone give me a perception, and if a certain number pass, then the whole group succeeds as a whole. Yeah, I do that. Um, I do that a lot with stealth. Yes. Um, <laughs> clank, give clank, me, clank. yeah, give me a group stealth, and if half the people pass, okay, you 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 succeeded. If half the people fail, sucks to be you. And I would treat crits. If someone rolled a natural twenty, one failure would be turned into a success. If someone rolled a natural one, a success would be turned into a failure. Huh. I like that. Yeah. So it it's a bit of an account a group accountability. So if you have that cleric that's wearing you know full plate mail and they're clanking around in their chains and oh I'm bumping into stuff, <laughs> you know the rogue that's up in front being really sneaky is probably gonna get pretty annoyed with that cleric real quick and then abandon them to his defeat. Exactly. One thing I like about Fifth Edition and it actually provides a reward reward um system the inspiration system. The inspiration system allows them to get. Uh, advantage on an ability check or a, a attack roll or a saving throw at any time um, and this is a good opportunity to reward people who come up with creative you know things like the chandelier thing make sure you use that as the dm when you when somebody comes up with a good way around something using the rules or just clever thinking make sure you reward it yeah because a, a really good and common reward to give is bonus experience but that doesn't really like feel like a reward to the player because a lot of times they don't know that they got it right and or even if they do know it it doesn't really immediately impact their game you know it might make them hit level 13 one session sooner but right when they got that they weren't instantly gratified which is an important thing is to gratify your players when you reward them i agree this is something that i can improve upon personally i think that i don't there's a lot of things that happen, but sometimes as a DM you get engrossed and it's easy to miss some things. Right. Um, so actually I've been playing with the idea of giving uh, everyone free inspiration to give to other people when they think they did something good. So that when I miss something, because it's been brought to my attention a couple times, that I miss something that, hey, John did this really cool thing and right. and I totally missed it because I was reading or writing or doing something different. and. So, uh, and if it's too much for you to uh, reward your players, maybe that's something you want to consider as well. Right. Um, and then the last kind of uh, point we want to touch on is if you don't know a rule, go ahead and just wing it, but make sure you're consistent until you identify what the rule is. Don't right. hold up the game waiting for somebody to search for a rule in a book. Make a decision on it, document it, and then go through the book and figure out because the Because house rule rules are okay. Yes, yeah. I like house rules. Modifying and tweaking rules, you know, the DMG is a guideline. It's not a set in stone Bible that you must follow. It's. I think you mean the player's handbook. Both of them. I was going to say most of the players. Yeah, the you're right. Has most of the rules. Yeah, but you know, it's basically ideas. And if you find a rule that you think 
could be tweaked a little to be improved on, at least for your circumstances, then go ahead and do that. That's a right. that, that is every game is different and got its own challenges. Right. And house rules are designed to overcome whatever challenge you think your team has. Right. If you have, you know, unless you take certain feats or you're a certain class, unarmed combat isn't very effective. Yeah. So, and if you have a lot of players that want to, you know, get in bar fights or fight in like fighting tournaments and stuff like that, come up with some house rules on how to handle unarmed combat. I've done it in the past. And, and you talked about it on here too. Yeah, I believe we did with the the fighting the and fighting pit that my guys fought in. Yeah, and it's really important to identify when the DMG or the player's handbook doesn't have a rule that fits something that your game needs, mm-hmm. and you can develop that rule on your own. Yeah, or and it's important that you know if you if you create this rule and you're like, oh, this is awesome, and then it doesn't work out, it's important to be able to recognize that your idea wasn't good, right? And that it needs to be fixed. Been there many times. Yeah, and and that is something that takes some getting used to and some humility is to understand that you're not always the smartest person at the table. I'm not even the smartest person at this table right now. (laughs) So yeah, I agree a hundred percent and it's, you'll make mistakes. Everyone does dust it off, get back in the game, but do take, listen to your, your players on what they think. But in the end, you are the judge, the jury, you are the executioner. So if you argue that they're right, they should learn to accept it. And then at the end of the game, when it's no longer bogging down the progress, you can continue to maybe make a correction at the next game. Say, look, we ruled it this way. This is the way it actually works in the book. This is how we're going to do it going forward. End of discussion. But you should try to avoid confrontation with your players because they're rules lawyers. I hate rules lawyers because... It bring I, I don't know all the rules all the time and I will not I'm, I will not deny that but I do have a problem with somebody saying that's not how it works look at it's on page 332 it's not how it works I don't care I don't give a shit this is the game I'm running and your ass just brought it to a standstill with your your bullshit and as someone who does know a lot of the rules and has read and just has a good memory for retaining information like that if the DM does something that isn't technically part of the rules, just keep your mouth shut. Yeah, because yeah. I tend to like I tend to say yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. Not art, and I don't intend to be argumentative and say, "Oh, you're doing it wrong." I say, "Oh, well, this is the rule." Just in case I still you were tell wondering. you that caster had a magical belt to let him ca- concentrate on two things at <laughs> yeah, once. Yeah, and, and I'll make a joke about it, but then it does create like a you do kind of back your DM into like now they have to they feel like they have to justify what happened. And yeah, for example, we had a game where. Uh, this caster had a fly spell cast on him, and then he cast uh, telekinesis. Yes. And I made a joke. I was like, oh, well, he can't do that. Those are two concentration spells, and which technically is the rule, but it's an NPC character that is supposed to be incredibly powerful, and uh, who cares? You know, it was for the flavor. You cared. Yeah, I didn't really care. I was joking. <laughs> and it was for the flavor of the the encounter. And, and then, then I, I got on the defensive about it. I was like, well, I... For the scenario, I wasn't even really thinking about that. Right. And so I, and I admit it was a mistake, but it wasn't so groundbreaking that we needed to stop the conversation, stop the game, and deal with it. Um, because for the most part, it was just else. <laughs> yeah. For the most part, it was just to save time. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what it was for. And it because of me just being you a smart aleck <laughs> and trying to be funny and make a joke. It ended up wasting time. Right, and that really, and that really is the goal, right? You want to waste as little time as possible because there's a lot to do when you're trying to save the damn universe. Most of the time, if your DM is breaking a rule, they probably know they are, and they're doing it on purpose. In this case, I did not. Yeah, in this case, he didn't. <laughs> but most of the time, you know, there are times that you have intentionally broken a yes, rule, and I've I noticed it, it and thought it was weird, and then saw why you did it, and it made sense. It's like, oh, okay. So just trust your DM. Yeah. Don't Plus, I me. make a lot of shit up on the fly, so that really does happen more than it probably should. Yeah. Um, Don't mostly, be like me. Just trust your DM. Yeah, and it's about having fun. Right. Like I said, I bend the rules a little bit. I bend the rules. Actually, I bend the rules a lot. I, <laughs> there's some rules that I just like, I don't like how that works. I'm going to change it because I yeah. like to change the monsters. I do yeah. that a lot. I change what they can do. I change what the weapons are carrying for no reason other than I don't like the weapon, you know? Right. (laughs) Oh, I don't like that he has a club. He has a great axe now. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes. um, In the end, you are the DM. You get the final say. Ah, my favorite segment. Unearthed tips and tricks. 
So our first unearthed tip and trick is our character concept. <laughs> I had a lot of fun with this one because I've ran this one before. <laughs> <laughs> the depressed medic. Everyone has their traditional clerics and paladins and what have you, but this guy's backstory is he's a combat medic and... He, he was kicked out after a while after he was discovered to have severe depression and thoughts of suicide. Slowly, he started to see the evil in people's hearts and decided that maybe not all are worth actually saving. <laughs> um, so he ended up changing jobs. So instead of being a, a healer, he ended up picking up a, a maul and becoming this slayer of all that is evil. And his definition of evil... <laughs> Might be different than yes, you. it was very different than others. You know, if you stole something, you were evil, and there goes your goes your hands. They're crushed right. under his mighty maul. You know, and sometimes he helps people along uh, along the uh, way, but he finds it extremely inconvenient. <laughs> what do you think about that? I, I, I do like the the idea of that. You know, you have a guy that has all the ability and faculties to heal his party members and you know save his friends, but just chooses not to because. Right. He's done with that life. (laughs) (laughs) So that is our character concept of the podcast, the depressed medic. For our encounter of the podcast, we have kind of a chaotic, crazy escort mission. You know, possibly your goal is to protect and deliver and escort a child who has this uncontrollable wild magic inside of them. You know, when he or she is under stress, their power comes out and just gets out of control. And the DM rolls on the wild magic table. You know, maybe it's something as simple as some bubbles fly out of their mouth. Or a fireball shoots out and burns down the forest next to you, you know. It creates a really interesting mechanic during the adventure. Because now there's a randomness to the game that wasn't there previously. Which really, it can. a lot of times it can be funny and entertaining. And sometimes it can lead to being deadly. Right, yeah. Sometimes, you know, maybe something happens and... One of your party members just starts speaking in a random language that no one knows what they're talking about. They just randomly start speaking in undercommon, and no one in your party speaks undercommon. And now you can't really interact with that person until you get it fixed. So the real question is, if they start speaking in another language, do they understand the language? Yeah, do they understand the language, or do they think they're still speaking in common? And it's coming out like, why can you not understand me? Do you not understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Um, So the... You know, the idea behind this, a uh, basic escort mission becomes something of chaos. Right. And that's that's really, that can be tossed into any one of your campaigns or adventures you do. Right. Um, so that is our encounter of the podcast, Chaotic Escort. Our DM tip of the podcast, overpowered. It's over 9,000. <laughs> it is okay to send monsters that your players cannot defeat against them. Such as in the first session, having them encounter a dragon. Yeah. Horde of the Dragon Thank you very much, Wizards, for that. We appreciate it. (laughs) It is important that they know that they are not the biggest, baddest mothers out there. Right. But it's also important that when they do encounter one of those big, bad mothers, that they have chances and ways to escape yes you don't want to pin them so they're forced to fight something they can't and it's unbeatable right and they but they do need to know that not everything they can they find not every problem they come across can be settled with violence and fighting their way out sometimes you're not going to be able to do that you know give hint, give them hints that the enemy is really powerful it may be too powerful for them yeah maybe they maybe they've they've come across something in the past or maybe they have knowledge of it uh, or maybe scholars. it's something that like has been like whispered about in myths for mm-hmm. centuries, and last time it was it was seen, you know, it destroyed half the world. Right, and now they're they're seeing signs of that same force. Right, the DMG actually gives uh, the recommendation of. Uh a wisdom save, yeah. fifth edition, <laughs> aka a fear save, <laughs> a, a save against the fear. They're, these beasts are so ominous and so terrifying. Like they're they're they radiate fear, and so that's a really good way to handle that for something that's very terrifying. Yes. One thing, however, to take note of is your players may not flinch in the face of danger, <laughs> such as they randomly shoot firebolts at things. Yeah, like a are, roper. Yeah, exactly. You know what I'm talking about. I do. Um, and force uh, ends up leading to an innocent being eaten by a giant stalactite. Yeah, stalactite tentacles. Yeah, the stalagmite on the ground or stalagmite. I think. I think a tight comes stalactite comes from the ceiling. I don't know though. 
Yeah, I've Googled this many times and I never remember. Yeah, it's one of those things that I don't really care about until I, I it comes it. up and then I'm like, oh, I need to know this. But anyways, if you don't know what a roper is, it looks like a giant stalagmite slash slagtite. Um, yeah, a giant spike coming out of the ground. <laughs> with a big giant mouth. And tentacles. <laughs> and big tentacles. And uh, so and that that's actually a good example of one that I changed extensively right. um, from the book. And so if anybody went and was playing it and knew hey we're fighting a roper which by the way i did not reveal what it was because i had no none of my players had any reason why they would know what this was right we hadn't spent any time in the underdark Um, but it was fun watching them struggle to metagame to decide what it was we thought it was a displacer beast that did not go well. It wasn't a displacer beast. <laughs> you probably would have had a chance against a displacer beast. Cause I think you were all level three. And oh yeah, we could we could have, we could have made work. We could have trashed a displacer beast. But that roper ended up having a uh, light a monk snack monk, monk sna- snack on the side. Monks do. But once again, our DM tip of the podcast. It's over nine thousand. <laughs> our magic item of the podcast <laughs> is. That's too deep. DBC references in one <laughs> podcast, that's too many. Is what Justin has aptly named the Sensu Beads. <laughs> okay, so what I did is I made a variation of the Prayer Beads. Instead, this would u- uh, hold several uses of either Cure Light Wounds or, uh, up to third level or a Healing Word uh, up to third level. Um, I originally added this because our party lacked uh, healer. healers. A healer in general. (laughs) And so this was a way for them to kind of offset that. The trick was, though, they don't recharge on their own. So they would have to... cast into them. Yeah, it stores potential energy. So so, this kind of creates... If you do have a cleric or something in your group, before they rest, they can put all their spell slots into these beads so they have extra spell slots. They have extra spells throughout the day. Or if your group doesn't have a cleric or someone who can heal, they have to find someone who does. Yeah. And possibly cough up some money. Cough up some cash. And the other good side of it is, too, is if you have a really small group, let's say of two or three people, by allowing them to store their spells in this, you can throw a little bit harder challenge at them and let them play a little more offensively than they would otherwise have to. Um, because they have those free spell slots for um, combat. Um, so that kind of goes both ways. I affectionately refer to this as pay for prey. So, you know, it's... It's a couple different options. Um, I highly recommend it. That is our magic item, the Sensu Beads. Our player tip of the podcast is don't Don't be be a dick. dick. You can avoid dickitude by explaining how or why your character has or has learned a particular ability or a feat. So when your ranger has the innate ability to track your favorite enemy, why do you have that ability? What what did you do in in your life to be able to flawlessly track the migration of a dragon mm-hmm. or how did your monk learn to you know slip through the shadows and you know f- seemingly vanish from one area and reappear in another or how did that wizard trademark that signature spell that magic missile yeah, or that did he find, it? Did he he find it from a scroll did his uh, a technique taught by a family member i mean right. What is the story behind it? And as cool, uh, as good as that is for learning new spells, it's important because it kind of helps fill the gap when people level up. It helps explain why they just all of a sudden learn something new. Especially since this is something we tend to do when we create characters, is we tend to explain why our characters have the abilities they have when we start. Right. But then when we level up, we don't continue explaining how we got these abilities. Poof! Hey, I can shoot a fireball now. Especially with multi-classing. I like to make them find someone to teach them that ability a mentor or some life experience that allowed that to happen maybe it's a party member yeah so like for example if your character you know you have a fighter that wants to multi-class as a barbarian maybe he just like starts having these fits of anger and he starts lashing out at his friends and his family and starts breaking stuff and eventually you know he learned he gets the he has this innate ability to just go into this blind rage and just ignore everything around him while he's just hacking away. Mm-hmm. Have him come up with some sort of explanation like that other than just, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a level one barbarian too now. <laughs> cool. Maybe oh. he's on drugs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he pops a pill. He's, he's got meth speed. <laughs> so that's, oh, our that's our player tip. tip. Don't, Don't be, a, be dick. a dick. You can avoid being a dick by explaining how you got your skills. Please join us on our next episode where we hear feedback from you, our heroes. We will discuss how to be a stage-oriented DM to create great game flow. 
We hope you enjoyed your experience here at the Crit Academy. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help others find our podcast by leaving hopefully a five-star review. You can also subscribe to our podcast so that we can help you on your future adventures. If you have any questions you want answered or subjects you would like us to discuss, please leave us feedback on Twitter and Facebook at Crit Academy, or you can email us at critacademy at gmail.com. I am your host, Justin. And I'm your co-host, Ryan. Thanks for listening. Keep your blades sharp and spells prepared, heroes. Heroes.